Two readings tonight, and uh, the first of them in the Old Testament. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, page 798 in the Church Bibles. And this is an easy text to remember. It's Jeremiah 3131. One of the great Old Testament passages about the New Covenant. So, Jeremiah 31, from verse 31 to verse 37, that's our first reading. And the Lord speaks to his prophet, and he says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. The great message there, of course, is that the Lord will not cast off his own people. He cannot. He's sworn to save them. Let's keep that text in mind and have it ready to hand, and we turn to a second uh, reading in the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians and chapter 2, reading from verse 14. It's on page 1161. 2 Corinthians 2.14. But thus, sorry, not thus, that was Jeremiah thus. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, and to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you 
or from you. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now I want us to take these two texts, which are there on the screen, uh, as it were, together tonight. They are a couplet, they are paired, they are matching texts. One is a prophecy, and the second is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Jeremiah 31 is a great prophecy, and if there is a fulfillment of it found, it is that text in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and especially verse 3, where the Apostle Paul speaks about these believers being a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, and this is the important expression to hold on to tonight, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And these texts have everything to do with our theme, which has been our theme on Sunday evenings since Easter time, and that theme, as you will remember, is maturity, spiritual maturity, growing up as Christians to that fullness of stature in Jesus Christ, which is God's great plan and purpose for every one of us. Now, let's just remind ourselves, what is maturity? Maturity is about coming of age, growing up, developing, reaching an advanced, ripe, fruitful, settled state. And when we see maturity in someone or something, don't we all if we are responsible for that person or for that project, don't we feel a great sense of satisfaction? The hard work has paid off. The job is finished. The harvest has been gathered. The building is built. The big project is successfully managed and brought to a happy completion. The character the character of that individual that we are concerned about is formed. That's maturity. And that's the guiding motivation in what we're looking at this evening. And I trust you'll follow me as we look at these themes. There are just two main points tonight, and they really go with each of the two texts that we have read. We keep Jeremiah in mind, we keep 2 Corinthians in mind, 
simultaneously. But my first point is this. Tablets of stone, the old covenant. Tablets of stone, the old covenant. What is a tablet of stone? Well, I look around me in this room and I can see a number of tablets of stone on the walls, as you can if you look around. And these tablets of stone are uh, memorial tablets about uh, some of the men and women who were part of Grove Chapel over the last 200 years. And uh, they're good visual illustrations because once, about 3,500 years ago, there were some other tablets of stone. And they were, of course, the, the tablets of the Ten Commandments. That's what is being referred to by these tablets of stone. And what were those commandments? Well, they were written by the very finger of God. They were inscribed on these stone tablets. And Moses, you remember, brought them down to the people of Israel and they were deposited in the Ark of the Covenant. And quite apart from that, those words, those, those ten words, as they are called, were spoken by the very voice of God in the hearing of all the people at Mount Sinai. Now, what are the Ten Commandments? Big and important question. They are the definitive expression of the law of God, of the mind of God, of the will of God for his people. These Ten Commandments, these ten words, tell us how we are to live so as to serve him and please him. And those ten words, from the very first one, you shall have no other God before me, to the final one, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's etc., etc., they are comprehensive, they are full, they are universally binding on us, just as they were when they were first given. Let me just remind you what we were saying earlier this year on Sunday evenings when we were back in Romans 6 and Romans 7. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 7 and verse 12, you may remember, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now keep that in mind this evening. The law of God, the commandments of God, are permanently, universally, continually holy and righteous and good. And our Lord Jesus himself said, you may remember, not one jot or tittle, not one stroke of a pen, not one dot of an I or cross of a T, we might say today, will be erased from those Ten Commandments throughout the whole of this age. That is true. But listen, because this is the point that I really want to make tonight. So make sure you're sitting still and comfortably and have a big breath and listen to what I'm about to say. Because this is really, really important. For as long as God's law is written only on tablets of stone, we will all remain in a state of immaturity and spiritual childishness. 
For as long as the law of God is nothing more than a written code on a tablet or in a book, external from us, at a distance from us, outside of us, we will be incomplete, we will be immature. If the law of God is only outside of us and not inside of us, we are not mature. Now, follow this. The law of God, the Ten Commandments, came to the people of Israel when they were in their childhood, in their infancy. And that is what is called the giving of the first covenant. Here in 2 Corinthians and in Hebrews in particular, this is the first covenant, the old covenant, the covenant given through Moses at Mount Sinai. Now, those Ten Commandments, the good, holy, righteous law of God, came to them, we must understand, from the God who called Israel his firstborn son, from the God who was a father to them. And please understand this, the giving of the commandments was to the people of Israel an act of love and grace and kindness. But insofar as that law was only written on tablets of stone, Only on the tablets of stone, the people who received that law remained in a state of infancy. Uh, We can illustrate this very easily from the Bible itself. There were three occasions at Mount Sinai where the Lord spoke about his covenant, his Ten Commandments, with his people. And on all three occasions... We can hear what the people of Israel actually said. Once in Exodus 19, twice in Exodus 24. And this is what they said. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. They said, we've been told what to do, and we're going to do it. We pledge our loyalty to this God. We intend to carry out what this law says. But did they? Could they? Would you? Then? Do you? Now? Only with a law written on tablets of stone. Because we know what happened to the people of Israel. They broke that covenant. As Jeremiah says in that passage, chapter 31 and verse 32, God speaks of the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. They broke it straight away, didn't they? I mean, isn't anything more graphic than the fact that as Moses is coming down from the mountain with these two tablets in his hands, he drops them and he breaks them on the ground because the people have immediately 
gone off and violated, I would suggest, all ten commandments in making for themselves a golden calf and calling this calf their god or their gods. Israel broke this covenant. And in the days of Jeremiah, they've broken this covenant. And that's why Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. He's got to bring a message which says, according to the very dictates and rules of that covenant that I made with you, which you have broken, you have to go to, you have to, go to Babylon. You have to be exiled. That is the just punishment that came for Israel breaking their covenant, God's covenant. But let me apply this to you and to myself again this evening. What is God's law to you and to me? Where do the Ten Commandments sit? Where are they found? You're saying, well, what do you mean? They're in my Bible, aren't they? Yes, I know they're in your Bible. Where are they in relation to your own heart and mind? If God's law for you and me is only an external law, a law written down somewhere else, a code, a set of rules that we know we've got to follow but we don't really want to follow, and we do so with a fluctuating degree of commitment or reluctance, if that describes you and me, that we think, oh, there's that law there. Better do it, I suppose. Better keep those laws. Don't really want to. But it's there. If that's you, if that's me, we remain in a state of spiritual immaturity. We're like children who are told by their parents... You've got to clean your teeth. But they don't really want to clean their teeth. They can't see the point of cleaning their teeth. They only do so under compulsion when they're nagged. And they say, oh, all right, if I must, to keep you happy, I'll go and clean my teeth. Don't really want to. This is the question. Is doing what pleases God for you and me a matter of reluctant compulsion, of saying, I suppose I'd better do what God wants to keep him happy, or even, I'd better do what the law says, because otherwise a few people in Grove Chapel might ask a few awkward questions. I may as well keep the law, I may as well try and love my neighbor and love God and tell the truth, And live like a Christian because, well, there's a law there, and if I don't, it's going to be hard for me. I better do it. That's really what I've got to do. Don't really have any desire to, but I'll do it. That is a stony obedience to God's law. It is to obey in a robotic, wooden, servile fashion. It carries out... God's instructions just to keep trouble at bay. It does so grudgingly. It is the attitude, isn't it, of the elder brother of the prodigal son. A sense of entitlement. Dad, I've been laboring for you all these years. You never gave me even a kid to share with my friends. I mean, come on, 
I've been slaving for you. I've been keeping your laws. I've been serving you loyally and faithfully all these years. Unlike that brother, that son of yours who swans off to a distant land, wastes everything. I mean, look at me and you've never rewarded. You never notice me, do you? Do you ever feel like that? God, I want to obey you and I'm trying to, but you never notice me. I, I try and do the right thing. I, I say my prayers. I read my Bible. I come to church. I go to the prayer meeting. I smile at the brothers and sisters there. I, I take the Lord's Supper. I'm, I'm doing my best, but Lord, why don't you make it easier for me? Why is it so hard for me? Why have I got to do this? Is that you? Is that me? And sometimes, and all too often, it's me. Here we go again. Another day. Got to pray. Oh, I don't want to pray. Open my Bible. Well, what shall I read? Five verses, ten verses, a whole chapter. You know, I have that feeling. That is a tablet of stone. I'd better keep God's law. Don't really want to. Tablets of stone. But I want to move on to my second and final point. Tablets of human hearts. This is the new covenant. Because the writing of God's law on the tablet of the human heart is the great feature of the new covenant. It's what the new covenant is really all about. In fact, everything in the old covenant was pointing towards the new covenant. You can even go back to the covenant of circumcision, that physical covenant in the flesh of Abraham and his male seed. What's it pointing towards? It's pointing towards a better covenant, the circumcision of the heart. What does that mean? Circumcised hearts? Explain that to, to somebody. It means a heart that is softened and no longer stony and no longer hard, but warm and receptive. And that's what Jeremiah is prophesying in chapter 31. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Here it is. It's so precious. It's what Redemption is working towards. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And it will really mean something new when that happens. This is the great character, a distinctive pattern of the new covenant. The better covenant. Paul writing to the church in Corinth, and we think to ourselves, he had a lot of trouble with them, didn't he? Oh boy, they caused him grief, didn't they? All their factions and the sexual immorality and, and taking each other to court and their misunderstanding of marriage and their problem with food and drink and spiritual gifts and all the rest of it. But Paul still says to this church in Corinth, with all their problems, I would say, Far more problems than we have here from my reading of, of 1 and 2 Corinthians and my reading of Grove Chapel. Far more problems than we have. And yet he says to them, you show you're a letter from Christ delivered by us, not written with ink, but written 
with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. This is the real thing. This is real Christianity. This is real spirituality. This is fulfillment. This is completion. This is maturity. When you and I come to that point, when the law of God is no more simply that code, that list, that far-off list of commandments that we feel grudgingly that we have to try and meet, but we don't really want to. When a new covenant work goes on, there is a new heart, a new attitude, a new willingness, a new love. It's the child who says, you know, as a matter of fact, I really want to clean my teeth. I didn't see the point before, but now there are great benefits in cleaning my teeth. Uh, I can fight off uh, tooth decay and cavities and gum disease. I have fresher breath. I feel better for it, and uh, it starts the day better, and I really want to clean my teeth. It's that sort of thing. It's the child who used to be, have to be nagged to write thank you letters to granny and granddad after birthdays and Christmas, saying, have you written yet? It's Boxing Day, 27th, 28th, 29th, New Year come. Written yet to Auntie Mabel and Uncle Jack? Oh, must I do that? And then the child says, I want to do it. Oh, I'm really grateful. I love that uh, wonderful new set of dishcloths that uh, Auntie Nora gave me last Christmas with uh, garden birds on them. And I say, thank you for that, Auntie Nora, whatever it might be. The law of God in the new covenant is written on the pulsating warm flesh of the human heart. In place of compulsion comes cheerfulness. In place of reluctance comes readiness. In place of weariness comes warmth. And it's that great work of God that is foretold not only by Jeremiah but by the other prophets, not least Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, that great chapter, verse 26, where the Lord says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We want to keep them. We love God. We are moved and motivated and inclined to do so. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a life-giving, renovating work. It breathes into the dead bones of servile legalism and reluctant compulsion and resurrects those bones into a new being, born again by the Holy Spirit, moved and ready to love God with heart and soul and strength and mind, the mind of Jesus Christ. Imagine this illustration, a student at college or university, and he's there 
just marking time, turning up to his classes occasionally, sporadically, half-heartedly, just doing the minimum to get by, but only just hanging on in there, never doing quite bad enough to be kicked off the course. But everything's a chore for him. Everything's weariness. He's doing his course, his diploma, his degree, whatever it is, but his heart isn't in it. And you can tell that by his whole demeanor. He makes excuses about how bad the lecturers are. He says, I should have done a different course. I was badly advised. I can't wait till I change and go somewhere else. I wish I'd never gone here. And it's everyone else's fault but mine. And his mum and dad despair of him. Can you imagine that? A stony-hearted student. But suppose that at some point during his course, his degree, this student now receives a new impulse of energy and life. There's now a new resolve. There's a new desire. There's a new fresh commitment. He's eager. He's punctual. His performance dramatically improves. Everyone notices it. There's a renewed sense of wholehearted responsibility and engagement. He forms new habits. He begins to realize his potential. People look at him and say, do you know what? It's as if he had become a new person. It's as if he had become born again. What's happened to him? The sulky boy has become a mature, grown man. He's come of age. He's matured. His friends marvel at him. His parents are overjoyed, thrilled, satisfied. Something wonderful's happened to our boy. He's, he's no longer how he was a, a few months ago. Something's happened to him. It's wonderful, they say. This is an academic illustration. But it's not far removed from a spiritual reality, is it? We're talking here about the new covenant work of God. We're talking here about the action of the Holy Spirit in a renewed heart. And let me say this. Do we have to wait until the New Testament to find living examples of new covenant believers? No. No. What do you see in Psalm 119? You see that warm, beating heart of a man who has God's word written on his heart. Verse 112, I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Verse 48, I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. I love your commandments. That's more than simply saying I, I love reciting the Ten Commandments. It's that I, I look into them. I, I think about them. I love what they 
I love the full-bodied expression of them. I love the depth of them. I love the application of them. I love the outworking of them. I love seeing them in others. I want to see more of them in myself. I don't see any longer simply those black and white words of commandments. I see in the whole Bible how these commandments are, are worked out and fleshed out, fleshed out in the lives of your people. I see it in fellow believers. I see it in those that I admire and love and follow. And above all, above all, above all, I see it in the only one who fully, wholly, totally, in every way, is that embodiment of that law, the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 119, Psalm 1. This man, who is he? His delight is in the law of God. And on his law he meditates day and night. He'll like, he's like a tree planted by streams of water, gives its fruit in season. Whatever he does prospers. What a man he is. Do you know such a man? Do you know a perfect man like that? Yes, you do. If you're a child of God, you know Jesus Christ. He is that man. The man of Psalm 40 is the same man. Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will. Oh, my God, your law is within my heart. Who can say that? Who can say that without blushing? Who can say that without feeling ashamed? Who can say that without saying, it goes so far, but after that, I no longer mean it? Only one man can say this. The man who said, I always do the things that are pleasing to my Father. John 8, verse 29. Why did Jesus come into this world? Why was he born? Why did he live as he did? Why did he die as he did, pouring out his blood, pouring out his soul, pouring out his life? Why was he raised to be at the right hand of the Father? He did it for this reason, that he might be the mediator of a new covenant, a better covenant, an internal covenant, a heart covenant, a covenant of the mind, the will, the conscience, the life, the being of the insides of us all. I'll say it again. If all we have is the written law, the tablets of stone, the law in some external, separated, far-off location, If living as a Christian is for us a matter of, uh, I'd better do it then, hadn't I? And never more than that, never more than that. Then we are still children of an old covenant. And we will not attain adult maturity if we remain in that condition. But God has done more than that. He has sent into the world his Son, the one that the Father sent is a man, a real man, a human being. The Lord gave to Moses on Mount Sinai two stone tablets and said, Here's your old covenant, Moses. Take these. Put them in the, 
in the ark and read them out to the people and cause them to learn these words and obey them and you shall live by them. They're written down here for you. And every year they would read out the law of God all in all its fullness. But it was that law written down on those cold, dry tablets. But then comes Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant. He's not made of stone. He's not made of metal or wood or any other substance. He's real. He's your body. He's your flesh. He's your mind and mine. He knows. He senses. He lives. He breathes. He sweats. He bleeds. He lives. He dies. He's tempted. He feels. This is our Savior. How do we know this law written on our hearts then? Let me just finish by saying this. If we are one with Christ, if we have union with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection, then we are saved. We are declared righteous and forgiven from all our sin. That's union with Christ, a most precious, precious teaching. But one thing I've been seeking to emphasize increasingly in recent Sunday evenings is this. We are called to communion with Jesus Christ. Remember the illustration of a marriage. You can have a marriage which is by law alone. And it's inscribed on a document in an office somewhere that these two people are married. But if it's only a certificate and on a register, it may be, in terms of actual relationship, completely meaningless. They are united by law, but are they united in their hearts? That's a different thing, isn't it? How are a man and wife united in their hearts? When they, when they talk together, when they walk together. When they laugh together, when they cry together, when they live together, when they love together, when they do everything together. And we're talking about communion with our heavenly bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And that means actively feeding on him by faith. Walking with him, hearing his word. Knowing him, loving him, for all that he is, our master, our bridegroom, the friend who sticks closer than a brother. Whoever you are, you imagine your best friend right now. Who's your best friend? Who's your closest companion that you've ever, ever known? Ask yourself that question. Whose company do you enjoy the most? Have you enjoyed the most? Who do you pour out your heart to? Who can you laugh your head off with and cry your eyes out with and never get tired of their company because they are, so, they are such close companions to you? And the Lord Jesus is a closer friend to you than anyone like that. Our Lord, our life, our sacrifice, our high priest, our righteousness. It's by walking with him 
that we grow to maturity. We have the mind of Christ. We are partakers of the Holy Spirit that filled the human Jesus, which he's now poured out on us. My parting words are these. To study Christian maturity is neither more nor less than to study Jesus Christ. And next Lord's Day evening, God willing, we come back to do that again, probably in the letter to the Hebrews, and look at that earthly life of our Lord Jesus and what that life of righteous obedience and love for God meant in him and for us. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, you have reached down in your mercy and taken hold of your people. But may we be so inclined all the more to take hold of you, to find in your word, in your truth, in the very word of Christ, that companionship and that mutual delight that your word holds out where we can say I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine he is to me the fairest of ten thousand he is the joy of my heart O Lord our God we do not look at maturity as some training program that we are to work towards by some soulless list of exercises help us to see that all fruitfulness all usefulness all helpfulness all excellence all attainment in the Christian life is only ever found when we know and love and follow and study and rejoice in and Rest in and delight in the lover of our souls, Jesus Christ himself. O Lord our God, help us. Bring Christ nearer to us and incline our hearts to reach out in love to him more and more that we may be ever changed, renewed people, we ask. We pray all this now in his name. Amen.